The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Let's now take time to turn to the passage that Cliff read this morning, Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. You'll notice at the top of your bulletins, or if you're following along on the app, that we have a title, and it's called Real Discipleship three tests. Jesus is going to give three tests, as it were, to three different individuals to give us insight about the nature of discipleship. And just get our contextual bearings again. Remember last week we were following Jesus into a Samaritan village where he was, he and his disciples were subsequently rejected in that town. And now we are given our context in verse 56, they went to went on to another village, having been rejected in the Samaritan village. Now they are moving on to another village. And that's where we are now with Jesus along the road, because it says in verse 7, or 57 rather, and as they were going along the road. So that's our setting. Just being rejected. That's going to be important as we make our way through this passage. Just coming out of being rejected in the Samaritan village, now walking along the road with, G- with Jesus and his disciples, and you're going to have these other folks come alongside of him and start begin a conversation with Jesus and mention some things. And we're going to see in Jesus' response to these people, he's going to give us insight into the nature of real discipleship. And you might be wondering, what is discipleship? What is a disciple? Well, a disciple is simply a learner. At, at the very basic, in terms of the word and what it means, it's just a learner or a student. A disciple is simply a student of another person. And in the case of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus is someone who learns from Jesus. But more than just sitting at his feet like in a synagogue or uh, at his feet out on on a mount where he's gathering people around, it's not just listening to his teaching, though that's an important, vital part of it. It is also following him and living his way and doing what he does as he models what it means to live in a God-centered way. A disciple of Jesus is a follower of Jesus. He learns from Jesus. He seeks to walk in Jesus' ways. Now, in the Gospels, a reference to Jesus' disciples can refer to the 12 disciples that Jesus chose specifically, or it can refer to a larger group of people, but it was simply those who were following after Jesus. You had the crowds that Jesus would would preach to, and within those crowds, you would have followers that would come out of those crowds, And so you have reference to disciples, meaning Jesus' 12 disciples, but you could also have disciples who are simply following Jesus. That's what it would mean. They're following Jesus, and they're wanting to come after him. But we also know from the Gospels that just because someone is a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that they are a true disciple. We know this graphically in the life of Judas. Judas was one of the 12. He followed after Jesus. He did ministry. He performed miracles. He was commissioned. He was sent out. He rubbed shoulders with the other disciples. But he turned out to be, as John tells us, a lover of money. And he had aspirations and expectations for his own glory in the kingdom. And Jesus didn't fit those aspirations and expectations. And so he harbored this love for money. He didn't see the beauty of Christ. And he remained a child of the devil his entire time he was in Jesus's inner 12, if you can believe that. So just because someone appears to be on the outside following Jesus doesn't necessarily mean they're a disciple on the inside. We also know in a text in John chapter 6 where 
We also learn where there were a group of disciples that after Jesus had said some pretty strong words about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, you might remember this is what it means to believe in me. It's just not a, a notional thing where you believe some facts, but rather you are embracing Christ and all that he is, and he used language to really kind of shock people into what he was meaning, saying that you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Well, not everybody liked to hear that. They thought that was strange. They didn't want to hang around to find out what that actually meant. And John tells us in John 6, 66, quote, they turned back and no longer walked with him. These were people that were called, just previous in that passage, disciples. So they were disciples who were following after Jesus. Jesus gave them hard, some hard words. And rather than like Peter saying, hey, we don't have anywhere else to go. You have the words of eternal life. We're going to hang on until you explain to us what you're talking about here, Jesus. They didn't want to hang around. They left and they stopped following Jesus. But I love how Peter, he, Peter and the other disciples, they're like, we're just going to, we, where else are we going to go, Jesus? Like, you have the words of eternal life. That saying you just said, yeah, it's weird. But we're going to hang on, and hopefully you're going to explain it to us in the future. And so he and Peter and the other disciples hung on and learned from the Lord Jesus. But not everyone who was a disciple followed Jesus all the way. Some of them broke off after things got a little strange, things got a little tough. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, now turning back to Luke, throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus labors, and I don't throw that word around, he labors, he speaks very strongly and often about the nature of true discipleship. And just as an example, we'll come to this passage in coming weeks, Luke chapter 14, Jesus has some of his sharpest and most challenging words about the nature of true discipleship. What does it mean to follow after Jesus? Jesus says, summing up that passage, all those tough words, we're going to look at those words in a few weeks, but he sums up his words in Luke 14 saying this, those hard words about discipleship. He says, quote, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple." Jesus wants his listeners to be clear on the nature of true discipleship. He wants his listeners to understand they can't make a superficial decision to follow after him. Can't be superficial. Can't treat this lightly. Can't treat it flippantly. I'll follow Jesus. I don't know. It sounds good. I guess I'll do it. Jesus sounds good. I can't, can't be like that. These hard words of Jesus in Luke 14 and, and in today's passages we'll see are intended to get his listeners to realize exactly what they are getting themselves into by following after Jesus. And just as importantly, they need to recognize their need for a supernatural heart change to enable them to follow after Jesus the way he requires. And similarly, in our passage today, verses 57 through 62 in chapter 9, Jesus, in a series of three brief encounters with three potential disciples, provides us vital insight in what it means to be a true disciple. Ask yourself, what does it mean to follow after Jesus? What does it mean? What does it look like? When we ask what does it mean to follow after Jesus, we're asking the same thing as what does it mean to believe in Jesus? And this is an important point to make. It's not a distinction without a difference. Because within the last 50 or so years, within broader evangelicalism, there's been a strain of teaching that has suggested that you can be a believer in Jesus and be heaven-bound, yet not be a disciple yet. So you're a believer, 
but you're not following Jesus yet. Maybe you've talked to people like that. I, I believe in Jesus, but I'm just not following him. That's an unfortunate and, and might I add, deadly dichotomy. To be a believer is, by definition, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And now what's gotten lost in this conversation is people tend to think, well, that means you must be perfect and you, you don't ever mess up and that means you're fully mature when you start following Jesus. It doesn't mean any of that. You see in the life of the disciples and Peter, who I just mentioned, he's all over the place. He's kind of a mess, but guess what? He's going to hold on to Jesus and he's going to keep following Jesus. That's what it means. To believe in Jesus is to follow after Jesus. To follow after Jesus is to believe in him. If you don't follow after Christ, then you cannot claim to believe in him. You cannot claim to be heaven-bound. Positively, if you believe in Christ, you will follow him. Not perfectly, but you'll cling to him and you'll desire to walk in his ways. So as we listen to Jesus' passage today, we want to listen and hear what he's calling potential disciples to. What does it mean to follow after him? And so in the first encounter, we have what we might call the test of expectations. The test of expectations. That's verses 57 through 58. The test of expectations. This man approaches Jesus and says something that sounds actually quite encouraging. Listen, listen what happens. This, he says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. That's encouraging. I'd like to hear that. This man has made the effort to go to Jesus. He has met Jesus face to face. He hasn't sent an inter intermediary. He's gone to him face to face. And not only that, but he makes a promise of total commitment. You're like, that's what I'm talking about. And he says, I'll follow you wherever you go. That's great because Jesus has said in Luke 9, 23, just a little bit earlier, if anyone would follow after me, let him pick up his cross, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. So apparently he heard something like that. He's heard this teaching and he's saying, okay, I'm ready. Let's do this. I will follow you wherever you go. And you know what? This is the kind of statement that pastors love to hear. You know, Pastor Derek, listen, I'm on fire for the Lord. I will go wherever he sends me. I will do whatever he tells me. And I would say, well, earlier in my ministry, I would say, wow, that's amazing. That's awesome. Pastors love to hear that. Actually, pastors who haven't been in the ministry very long love to hear that. Because pastors who have a little more experience, as I think I've come to have, have learned that these kinds of big statements need to be tested. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He wants to test this man's understanding of what he just said. Do you realize what you just said? You will follow me wherever I go. It's not discouraging him. He's testing him. Do you, do you get it? Do you get what you've just said? Jesus wants this potential disciple to feel the weight of what he just promised. Do you really know what you're saying, friend? Following me is the hardest thing in the universe if you attempt it in your own strength. Following Jesus is impossible if you pursue it without a spirit-wrought change of heart and the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Jesus' words here, as in the other two encounters that we'll see, confront the heart of that potential disciple. They confront the heart. Importantly, Jesus' words here are neither a discouragement to not follow Jesus, so we don't want to read it too negatively, nor the encouragement to follow him. They're simply a statement about Jesus' own life and ministry. Watch what he says. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes 
And birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Why such a response? Because he wants this potential disciple to know what following him might entail. You say you want to follow me, but currently I don't have a place to call my own. I am traveling from village to village, town to town, preaching and healing. The days are long. The sleep is, isn't always adequate and isn't always comfortable. In fact, you might remember that I was just rejected from a previous village. We couldn't get a good night's sleep there because they didn't want us there. Are you ready for that? Following me will require you to meet with trials, small and large, suffering and rejection in this life. Are, do you realize that? Do you realize what you just said? Now, Jesus refers to himself here as the Son of Man. And I take this to mean a reference to, back to Daniel 7, his reference now to referring to himself as the, as the one who is, who is the rightful recipient of this kingdom that he will receive from the Ancient of Days. This is Daniel 7. God the Father, the Ancient of Days, is going to give this Son of Man in Daniel 7 a kingdom. And so here the, Jesus is referring to himself as the Son of Man, namely that one who is going to receive a kingdom from God the Father. And you might be wondering, why would he refer to himself as the Son of Man when he's talking about not having a place where he can lay his head? He's arguing from the greater to the lesser. Saying, listen, if the Son of Man, the rightful king of this whole earth, doesn't have a place to lay his head, how can you expect anything different or better? He's using this argument from greater to lesser to emphasize the difficulty of following him. Even foxes and birds of the air have beds to sleep in, but the Son of Man, the rightful king of the whole earth, has no place to call his own, no place to lay his head. If you follow me, you can't expect better treatment than what I have received in this life. Again, it's not, it's not a discouragement. It's just saying, are you, do you understand that? Do you get that? Do you, is that? Is that sinking into your ears? Where's your heart really at? Now, these words, I think, have to be balanced with Jesus' other words in the, the Gospels, where he said that he will provide everything that his disciples need in this life. And this is a remarkable passage in Mark. We looked at it a few months ago when we looked at giving. Mark chapter 10, verses 29 through 30, when Peter says, look at Jesus, we, okay, we're doing what you're telling us to do. We've left everything to follow after you. Um, what about us? And Jesus says, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold in the future. No, he says, now, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions... And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And this is not a promise for a certain amount of wealth or prosperity uh, because of your following after Jesus. But it is a promise that Jesus will provide for his disciples. That's what he'll do. He says it clearly. That, that in following him, you will, you will have everything that you need. He says it in a similar way in Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, namely the, the, the necessities of life that he has just talked about in Matthew chapter 6 previously, food, clothing, and so on, all these things will be added unto you. So we want to balance Jesus' statements here. He does provide for his disciples, but he does want any potential disciples, any discipleship candidates to know what following him may entail. Just look at his own life and what is going on. In other passages, he'll allude to how the 
The world hates him, and that, for that reason, the world will hate you as well. How can you expect to receive better treatment than the master you are following who was treated poorly during his time on earth? He wants this disciple candidate to know that following him does not entail a life of ease, perpetual recreation and comfort, or constant predictability. Jesus is here on mission to seek and to save the lost, and that work is demanding work. It's challenging work. It's a work that will entail rejection and persecution, even hatred from others. If you, those who want to follow Jesus must be willing to follow him all the way, even if it means discomfort in this life. And here's an important thing that we need to add. The only way you can follow Jesus into tough demanding, even excruciating situations and circumstances for the sake of the gospel is, is by dependence upon a supernatural work of the Spirit. And now you might be thinking, Derek, the Spirit's not mentioned in this passage. Where are you getting that? Well, let's turn to another passage that sounds a lot like this for a clue into what we're talking about. In Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and following, another passage we'll get to in coming weeks, Peter is now being confronted by Jesus about something that's going to happen in Jesus' life. And he's exposing something in, in Peter. Something needs to be exposed, brought to the surface. Luke twenty two thirty one says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord... I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Sounds a lot like I will follow you wherever you go, doesn't it? Sounds exactly like our disciple candidate here in verse 57 and 58. I will go with you, Jesus, to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, that's not going to happen. In fact, you're not even, that's, that's not going to happen immediately. In fact, something devastating is going to happen. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me, much less follow me all the way to prison and to death. Peter needed to be taught that his natural ability was totally inadequate to follow after Jesus. Peter, on his own, could not follow Jesus to prison and to death. Indeed, his self-manufactured courage, that's precisely what that was in his statement to Jesus, his self-manufactured courage would be dashed to pieces by a little servant girl. Jesus needed to humble Peter to get him off of self-reliance. But after, here's, here's where we get the spirit part. After the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, Peter would be a completely different man, wouldn't he? Completely different. Preaching in the power of the Spirit, preaching the gospel boldly, and then going to prison without even flinching. The new Peter. You might call him the new covenant Peter because the new covenant had had that effect on his life. The Holy Spirit had now enabled Peter to live and act boldly for Christ's sake and to follow after Jesus the way Jesus requires. Perhaps Jesus in this guy, this discipleship candidate, perhaps Jesus sensed there was a prideful self-reliance that needed to be exposed. That's what I've brought to believe here by studying this passage in the light of the rest of the gospel and the other gospels. 
This man was likely relying on his own strength and resources. He hadn't been humbled to see how weak and frail and desperate he was for the power of God in his life. That this following after Jesus was not something you can take lightly and it's not something that you can do on your own. It's not a call to muster up your own willpower. But to fall before the Lord for grace so that you can follow him in the way that he requires. So when this potential disciple walks up to Jesus and makes a self-confident promise that he'll follow Jesus wherever he goes, Jesus responds with the pride-crushing note of what it really means to follow him. You have to have appropriate expectations. If you follow me, it may be that you're called to endure what I endured, and the only way you can do that is by the grace of God and a supernatural helper. And that's test number one, the expectations test. Test number two would, would, is something that I think we could call the allegiance test. The allegiance test. Verse 59, and to another he said, follow me. This interaction is slightly different because, from the first because Jesus is the one who initiates the conversation by saying, follow me. The verb to follow is a command. It's in the present tense. Jesus is telling him, this man, to follow him right now, this very moment. The problem, however, is not in the command. It's in the response. The response that has the word first in it. That's a problem. When Jesus says to you, follow me, you don't say first. We try to teach our kids this, right? When we, mommy and daddy give you an instruction, you don't raise your hand and say, but first can I No, you obey, and then we can talk about uh, things after that. He says, in this context, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Listen, Jesus, I want to follow you. I I will follow you. I really will. But first, I have to do this one thing. And and in fact, this may have seemed very reasonable for him to do, to, to request to go bury his father. This may have You could even consider this maybe a godly response. He needed to meet family obligations. And this was the way he could honor his parents. But such a response reveals this man's heart. It hadn't been changed. By saying first, in that little word, he is saying volumes. In that one little word, first, he is saying, Jesus, there's something else in my life that's more important than following you. That word first speaks volumes. He couldn't see yet that his family obligations were to be fulfilled through obedience to the Messiah, not in place of obedience to the Messiah. Let me just say that again, because that's crucial for us to understand our own discipleship. This man could not yet see that his family obligations were to be fulfilled through obedience to the Messiah, not in place of obedience to the Messiah. Now, there is some debate over the reason for this man's request. Some say, well, his dad wasn't dead yet, and he wanted to bury him and collect the inheritance. And then some say, well, no, he was dead, and he wanted to go and honor his family in this way. Frankly, I think this debate is interesting, but I think it largely misses the point. What It doesn't really matter if the man's man was, the, this man's, dad was dead already or going to die soon or in the future. What's most important is that this man wanted to accomplish a task before he followed Jesus. That's the point. But that's not how discipleship works. 
If you're going to follow Jesus, you follow, you follow him first, and then you mediate all of your earthly relationships and commitments through Jesus and his word. When you're united to Christ by faith, every single earthly obligation and relationship is now a mediated relationship and a mediated obligation. It never stands on its own anymore. There are no autonomous decisions in your life. This is why the, the, the expression, an expression that I've used, so I'm not throwing anybody under the bus, by the way, but when you ask people or that maybe they'll, they'll give you kind of their priorities in life, they'll say something like, God, family, and work, or something like that. But it starts with God. And you hear that and you're like, great, man, this, this is, sounds great. The problem with that is, and I'm, again, I, I'm assuming the best about people who say that, um, the problem with that expression is that it is si uh, siloing off each category as though work and family are not mediated through your commitment to God. Now, uh, hopefully that people who are saying that are, are meaning that, but what we want to be careful to do is not silo these things off as though now Jesus is he's, he's Lord over your religious life, but when it comes to family and work, well, you're going to handle that. No. Jesus is Lord of all. And now when you are following him, you mediate your family obligations, your work obligations, your life obligations through Jesus and his word. There may be seasons where you actually have to prioritize work over family. And there may be seasons where you have to prioritize family over work. But it all is dependent on following Jesus and his wisdom in his word. So that's what Jesus is now calling this disciple hopeful to. Now, Jesus also responds with some startling words, okay? And Jesus is a master at this. It's an urgent time. It's an urgent matter. The king has come. The kingdom has dawned. The end of the ages has dawned. And it's an urgent time. And so Jesus often speaks very strongly in order to get us to wake up to see what's really before us. So he says to this guy, you know, you have to feel for this guy. I know I'd probably have my, feel, I'd have my feelings hurt in this case, you know. Uh, let, the, let me go first and bury my father. That's what the, the candidate, the disciple candidate says. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. That's clear enough. He wants this man to go tell others to repent and believe the gospel so that they might gain entrance into this kingdom that is now dawn and the coming of the, the Messiah. But what does this leave the dead to bear their own dead mean? Again, there's a lot of debate. My, the, the way I take this, I think the best way to understand this is that Jesus is referring to his family members who have not committed to Jesus as being spiritually dead so that the the expression should be like this. Leave your spiritually dead family to bury your physically dead father, but you fo follow me and proclaim the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus is telling this man that he may, must make a decisive break from those who are not following Jesus. When it comes to following Jesus, you cannot be swayed in your obedience by those who are not following Jesus. That's just a simple, basic truth of the, of the gospel. When it comes to following Jesus, you cannot be swayed in your obedience away from following Jesus by those who are currently not following the Lord. If his dad was dead, there's nothing he can do about his dad's situation right now. There's nothing he can do. 
Going to the burial cannot change his dad's eternal destiny. Jesus is saying, your family does not follow me. The time is short. Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Let your allegiance be fully to me, the Lord Jesus Christ, and go and seek and save those who are still alive and willing to hear the gospel. Now, those are tough words, but they highlight the urgency of what's happening, of what is currently the case. The king has come. The, the end of the ages has dawned. The greatest news in the universe is now here. Christ has died so that sinners can be justified and made right with God and live for eternity with him rather than being judged for all eternity. The time is urgent. Now, some of us, I, I think, probably still chafe at Jesus' words here. Just If there are words in the gospel that we would wish Jesus hadn't said, this might be on top of the list. You can kind of understand why when unbelieving scholars work their way through the Gospels, it's easy for them to kind of start picking things out because, ooh, that, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound like Jesus. Well, it is Jesus. These are actually good and wholesome words, though they are tough words. Jesus needed to begin, or I'm sorry, this man needed to begin with following Jesus and then make decisions regarding his family through allegiance to Jesus, not follow Jesus by clinging to allegiance to his family. This request to go first and bury his father indicated this man had not yet seen that ultimate allegiance needed to be with Jesus, not his extended family. And sadly, in my experience, I've seen that many people are kept from following Jesus because of their family's influence, whether it's a spouse or parents or siblings or extended relatives. It's a very, very strong pull. We have natural affection for our family and our relatives. We have natural affection for our parents. Jesus knows that, which is precisely why he, pro he spoke strongly and probably in some of the strongest language you find in the New Testament precisely about that relationship. As we'll come to Luke 14, he will use even language of hatred to highlight, not that you're to hate your parents, that would be sinful, but that when others look into that relationship and even your parents are looking in, they might say, wait, you want to go on a missions trip? You want, to, you want to commit to church? You want to prioritize church? You want to prioritize the body of Christ over me and, and over us and our dinners every Sunday? You must hate us. Jesus is using strong language because he knows that those natural ties are the strongest ties. But if we are going to follow Jesus wherever he will go and wherever he will lead us, those ties need a decisive cut. And that's what he's doing with this disciple here. That's why Jesus spoke so strongly. Now, Jesus, of course, is not suggesting that this man or any other disciple hopeful should not honor his parents. In fact, in Matthew 15, Jesus will rebuke the Pharisees very strongly for establishing a, tr a tradition that relieved them from the responsibility to honor their parents. But these earthly obligations and responsibilities are to be mediated through Christ and his word, not the other way around. And that's test number two. That's the test of allegiance with this disciple hopeful here. We come to the last test. This is what we might call the affection test. Verses 61 through 62, the affection test. This man comes up to Jesus, says, I will follow you, Lord. Similar to the first one, not as strong, 
But similar to the second one, he says that dreaded word first. He wants to go say farewell to his family, then follow after Jesus. Now, what's interesting is this man likely knows what's required of following after Jesus. He knows it's going to take him away from his family. Commend him on that. It's probably why he's asking, because it needs to be a final farewell. I need to go say goodbye. He knows that following Jesus will probably take him away from family, because Jesus is going everywhere throughout Israel. So it's a reasonable request, we might say. And to make it even harder, it has Old Testament precedent. Did you know that? Elisha asked Elijah, when Elijah said, follow me, Elisha said, can I go say goodbye to my parents? And guess what Elijah said? Sure. I mean, he didn't say it that way, but he basically gave him permission. The Hebrew word for sure, right? But Jesus' response is not like Elijah's response. Jesus doesn't grant this man permission like Elijah, granted Elisha permission, which signals that something greater than Elijah is here. Jesus' response at first seems a little cryptic and almost evasive. He says, No one who puts his hand to the plow looks back and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, how does this response response answer this man's request this disciple apparently jesus is able to sense that this disciple's response is missing something there's something missing here there's an affection for his family that surpasses his affection for jesus if his affection for jesus had surpassed his affection for his family he would have followed after jesus and then sought jesus's wisdom and counsel on how to respond to a family that he has just left Behind Jesus, how should I handle this? But instead, he wanted to handle it autonomously on his own. I'll take care of this, and then I'll follow you, Jesus. And Jesus' response about the plow highlights that this man was not yet fully convinced that Jesus is worthy of an even greater affection than his family. He could tell that this man might start plowing only to soon look back with longing at his previous life. Jesus was concerned that this man might start down the path of discipleship only to be drawn back to the comfort and love of his family and his previous life, thus demonstrating that he wasn't worthy of the kingdom of God because he didn't love the king. There's an urgency here. The Messiah has arrived, just like we saw in the previous test. The, the Messiah has arrived. The end of the ages has dawned. You must unite your heart to Jesus and never look back. That's the call of discipleship. That's the test. Now, what I want to observe about this passage that is very interesting. We are not told that these men walked away from Jesus like we're told in John, are we? Nope. There's no indication that they walked away from Jesus. There's also no indication that they followed Jesus. There's nothing really in this narrative to help us decide what happened to these disciple hopefuls. We're just not told. But that's precisely the point, isn't it? Just like these three men, every person must individually come to terms with the demands of following Jesus. You say you want to follow Jesus wherever he goes? Well, that may lead you into some real trouble. Are you ready for that? That's the question. Again, it's not a discouragement. It's not an encouragement. It's just, are you ready? Do you understand what you're saying? Are you understanding that 
you can only be ready for such a calling and ready for such obedience if you are born again and empowered by the work of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. You hear Jesus calling you to follow him, but you have a few things you'd like to square away before you follow him. You are showing that your heart is still valuing earthly things over Christ. You need the Spirit of God to enable faith and repentance in your life. And so these three tests should humble everyone in this room, everyone listening online, and everyone out in the courtyard. All of us. It should humble all of us. If you are an unbeliever this morning, perhaps you're visiting this church or you're checking out Christianity, maybe you got a, a, a card that we gave you yesterday when we went out evangelizing the neighborhood and you're here checking things out, we're glad that you are with us. Jesus wants you to be very clear on what it means to follow him. You know what's interesting? When we talk to people in evangelism, they will mention Jesus' uh, so-called uh, disciples as being one of the reasons why they don't want to follow Jesus or believe in Jesus. There's just so much hypocrisy. Well, Jesus makes it clear that following him is something that you don't take on flippantly. Following him is serious business. A number of those people who unbelievers point to as being reasons why they don't want to believe in Jesus, it could be that those people are simply not walking and following after Jesus because they weren't told up front what it means to really follow after the Lord. So if you're an unbeliever, just keep that in mind. What, what, look at what Jesus calls true disciples to. He is offered, Jesus is offering you full pardon of all your sins. He's offering you complete forgiveness from God. He's offering you eternal life, and he's offering you no more fear of death. And that no more fear of death is something that we definitely and desperately need in our current times. Many people are afraid of death. But following him requires you to follow him wherever he will lead you. It requires that you love him more than even your closest relationships. It requires that you order your life's priorities in line with Jesus' will, not your own. In other words, you need to repent and turn to Christ in faith, trusting in his death on the cross as your full payment for your sins and his resurrection from the dead as your perfect righteousness, now is that he is exalted in heaven, ready to give you his perfect righteousness. Following Jesus is impossible without the saving work of the Holy Spirit, so you need to cry out to God for salvation. That would be the word to the unbeliever here today. Do you hear Jesus calling you to follow after him? Recognize how high his demands are and recognize that you need a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. You need to turn to God in repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. But if you are a believer this morning, we should also be humbled. If you've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you've been born again, these tests should humble us because they expose our tendency to complain when difficulties arise from following Jesus. They expose our tendency to prioritize our own desires over Christ's and his desires, this passage indicates that we need constant renewal and repentance in our own lives. Have you allowed yourself to believe the Christian life should be one of ease and comfort and avoidance of pain and trouble with no little to no conflict from others? Have you, have you bought into that? We need to have our minds renewed and we need to repent and we need to hear Jesus' words here in this passage. Jesus says, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere 
to lay his head. He's your Savior and Lord, and that's how he was treated. Have you started to approach your earthly obligations? I'm preaching to myself here, so you can just kind of join in or listen in, okay? Have you started to approach your earthly obligations and relationships apart from Christ rather than mediating all your earthly obligations and relationships through Christ and his word? Have you allowed a pattern of delayed obedience to creep into your life where you postpone obedience to Christ until you attend to other issues that are important to you? Are you tempted to retreat back into the comfort of your pre-conversion days? Jesus says to us, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's consider these challenging words and ask God and seek God for his empowerment in our life. Seek his forgiveness and seek fresh help to faithfully follow, follow after our Savior. Now, one of the things that I've tried to point out as we've walked through this passage is that we need the help and enablement of the Holy Spirit in order to accomplish these things. It is impossible to follow after Jesus in discipleship without the help and enablement of his Holy Spirit. It's impossible. These are impossible demands. Jesus' demands for discipleship are impossible apart from the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And that's an important point to make because sometimes, at least in my experience, and I think in the experience of others as I have interacted with people in my pastoral ministry and uh, ministry prior to becoming a pastor, is that sometimes you read these passages and it can spark in you a desire to just stir up your native willpower and grit your teeth and get after it. Okay, I just need to follow Jesus. This is really hard, but I'm going to do it. It's the wrong response. Why do we know that's the wrong response? Matthew 11, 28 through 30. We know it's a wrong response for two reasons. One, Jesus' statement in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, and two, because Scripture never contradicts itself. Jesus says to this, it says this in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Come to me, all who are labor and all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. How can it be that that statement can come out of the same mouth as the statements that we just heard in this passage or the other passage about hating one's father and mother or, or renouncing all to follow after Christ? How can these two passages exist together in a Bible that does not contradict itself, in a Savior who does not contradict itself, in a Savior who always tells the truth? How do they exist together? How are they both true? Jesus can make such high demands for discipleship while also saying that he will give us rest and that his yoke is easy because Jesus never intended these, de these demands to be met in our own strength. Picking up one's cross, following after the Lord wherever he will go, making a decisive break with those closest to us for the sake of Christ and the gospel cannot be accomplished apart from the grace of Christ and a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. So we are utterly dependent upon the Lord in order to follow after the Lord. In fact, that is New Testament religion. You need God to obey God. Christ makes high demands... Christ makes high demands for discipleship, but he provides your full pardon for sin by faith alone. He changes your heart to love him supremely. He supplies you with his Holy Spirit so that you can keep believing and trusting in his promise in the midst of difficulty. And he provides for all your earthly needs, and he dwells inside you and fills you with his love. In other words, Jesus empowers you 
to bear his yoke. And when he empowers you to bear his yoke, that yoke is light. It is easy. Jesus' hard words about the demands of discipleship were never meant to stir up our native willpower, get us to grit our teeth, and grind out obedience. They were meant to drive us in desperation to Jesus to be forgiven, cleansed, and empowered by the Spirit to walk in faithful obedience. So let's, let, let's ask the Lord, even now as we pray, to press these sharp words onto our hearts so that we will be brought to repentance and rely even more upon His grace and power in order to follow after Him. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do ask now that You would grant us grace to continue to follow after the Lord to meet these high demands of discipleship. We are weak and needy. We realize that we cannot obey on our own. We cannot fulfill these hard words on our own. We need the grace of Christ. We need the grace of the Holy Spirit. We are to depend upon the Spirit at all times. Would you help us, Lord? Would you enable us? Would you fill us with hearts with your love? Would you stir up our affections for the Lord Jesus? Would you open our eyes to his beauty so that we leave all and follow after him because he is so irresistible, so wonderful, so good, so magnificent, so gracious, so kind, so holy. Open our eyes to behold him that we might leave all and follow after him wherever he goes. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.